Shall we begin? Let's begin now. Supervisors have been ratcheting up fines. The government has revealed a roadmap to strengthen oversight. And almost every month we're hearing examples of accountants, mainly sole practitioners, who are feeling overwhelmed by the demands of the regulations. We are, of course, talking about anti-money laundering. As the profession feels the AML strain, today on the show we will be discussing why accountants are feeling exasperated and why it's become such a problem for the profession. Hello, I'm Richard Hattersley and welcome to No Account for Taste. I'm joined, as always, in Account Web Towers by our technology editor, Tom Herbert. Hi, Richard. Uh, later in the show, we will be speaking with Will Finell, the founder of Finell Clark, and also the author of the brand new book, The Human Firm. Uh, we'll be finding out more about Will's research into going beyond digital and becoming a client-centric, scalable firm. And later, we'll also be discussing Go Simple Tax's acquisition of accounting app Coconut, which was partly driven by the delay to MTD ITSA. But first, let's return to anti-money laundering and the increased pressure it is having on the profession. And the growing frustration amongst many in the accounting profession about the increased burden of customer due diligence and AML processes really came to a head this week on Accounting Web with the recent case of an overwhelmed sole practitioner who was hit with the combined financial penalty of almost £24,000. And this sole practitioner, uh, an accountant called Malcolm Bass, was an ICAW member since 1982. He received a massive fine after a routine monitoring visit, unearthed some AML issues, and uh, mainly around his record-keeping and processes, but this sole practitioner in question felt just so overwhelmed, he said, by the whole thing that he effectively buried his head in the sand. And this ultimately led to quite a substantial figure. Tom, it really is a sad case, but illustrates just how tough accountancy bodies are taking AML processes and procedures. They are, yes. Um, I remember a, a few years back, I was at a particular event for one of these accountancy bodies um not the one we were talking about as part of the story but anyway uh, these accountancy bodies are, are overseen by <laughs> uh, opbas the uh, the magnificently named uh, supervisor of the supervisors and uh, they wrote this report that was absolutely scathing about the accountancy bodies and their supervision of aml and, and as at, at this event the <laughs> The, the bodies are absolutely furious and uh, it does feel like the regulator supervisor that they're really tightening the screw and uh yeah i mean there are lots of uh, angles of attack on this really i mean you've got organized crime gangs running rings around the authorities you've got sanctions of a lot to do with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but others as well, the rise of cryptocurrencies. So it, there is this need to do something. And, and government has, uh, as I say, tightening tightening the screw on the, on the regulators. Uh, you've got this economic crime plan too that the government's, uh, we'll, we'll come on to later, that the government's introducing. Uh, but the government can only legislate. Uh, the private sector 
is, is the one on which this burden is falling. They're, they have to contribute significant resources. I mean, but both fire the, 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 the AML levy, um, but also in, in, in just the, the time and effort they need to spend in, in complying with these rules. And that, that puts pressure I mean, on, on, on the professional bodies, but HMRC, who, who if, if you're not supervised by a professional body, then, then HMRC is the one that uh, has to deal with this. Um, and then obviously the accountants themselves. And I think 55 comments and counting from accountants on this um, overwhelmed accountant article. Uh, and I think the majority here, I think, really do feel that it's a sledgehammer to crack a nut with a lot of these things. And, and, and you know, particularly in this case where and it doesn't really seem to be, obviously he's broken the rules. It's not like he's he's got a sort of... Uh, a, a Tesco bag full of fifty-pound notes that he's been walking down to uh, the local branch of HSBC and depositing in there. He, he's just not kept up to date with this, and you know he's clearly an an, an older chap who's who's winding down his practice and is struggling to cope with these um, new regimes. And hitting hitting him with this seems a twenty gram penalty just seems disproportionate. And I think it speaks to an inherent sense of fairness, I think, in the profession when Russian oligarchs have bought up half of London and sole practitioners are the ones who are getting slammed. So, yeah, a lot of frustration on the comments section. Yeah, let's look at some of those comments. I really should know this, but a regular commenter on the site said that AML was about 80% of their last review. Uh, they said they didn't care much about anything else and nearly every communication from their professional body is about it. If I had wanted to spend my whole life doing, quote, pointless paperwork to keep the regulator happy, I would have become a teacher. Uh, David Winch, who we know quite well on the site, our resident AML expert, um, David said, this is the most unfortunate case with a rather long history. I have every sympathy with the sole practitioner who finds the many and diverse demands of being in practice overwhelming. The disciplinary proceedings can only have heaped on additional stress, to say nothing of the financial costs. It can feel as if one is alone and no help is available, but if he could have reached out to someone, it could have resulted in a less stressful outcome, which I think kind of sums up, really, because this case had been going for quite a number of years. Um, but when something is dangling over you like this, it can become, it can kind of get out of hand, can't it? it can the, the stress of it can just only exacerbate as you've kind of left it a little bit longer and longer and then you feel like you, you don't know what else to do. But picking up on that point, I really should know this, but as said, it kind of echoes what you were saying, how the, the professional bodies are really stepping up their regulation of this, where they said that 80% of their review was purely around AML, which really shows just the, the, the pressure cascading down from the supervisor of supervisors down to the accounting bodies and, and that's it. The they look like total stooges, don't they? They're, they're the government's leaning on them and they're, they're sort of seen to be doing the will of the government as opposed to uh, sticking up for their members, as it were. So I appreciate the, the tricky position they're in. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like there possibly needs to be a bit more pushback up from them rather than just sort of passing on, passing on this stuff um, as it comes down the pipeline. And so we've had this story this week, and it seems like 
almost every month actually looking at the regular disciplinary orders coming from the various accountancy, professional accountancy bodies, not just this one here from the ICAW, but I've seen it come up from the other ones as well, that they are really making sure that AML procedures and processes aren't as tight and as scrutinized as they can be because this is obviously, as we've kind of said as part of this background, such a is such an important part of the profession at the moment and an area which they're being leaned on as well as, like said, Tom. And this comes as the government has recently um, unveiled the Economic Crime Plan 2, which aims to improve the effectiveness of money laundering regulations through first focus on, on the AML supervisory regime and reforming the suspicious activity reports. And then a little longer down the line, there's also talk of amending the money laundering regulations. So this goes to the government's really planting their flag here, saying this is something we want to really take seriously, something which we want to um, confront. I think the what, what, to pick up on one point there, suspicious activity reports are regularly picked up on anything we write about money laundering. Inevitably, one or two people will come up saying, well... I reported something and nothing ever happened. There's immense frustration that you you take the time and effort to write up your report, send it off into the ether, and you know obviously it's 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 potentially um, <laughs> criminal investigations going. So they're not going to keep you in the loop, as it were. But you know you you might be still dealing with this client, or you might hear about them you know, on the grapevine and, and nothing ever seems to come back. No queries come back, no action is taken and you just it's fire it off. There's a, there's a lack of transparency and a perceived lack of action. So, you know, um, I mean, I'm pleased they're mentioning it at least as an issue. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's something you say has been lingering on the site for quite a while, the uh, concerns about that. All this says to me is that this isn't going to go away. If anything, it's going to keep getting more and more rigorous the scrutiny is going to continue and if anything those people who say that aml should be a box ticking exercise should perhaps maybe rethink it because if anything it's going to be anything but that but with all this pressure being put on firms it's no surprise then that accountants are looking to other ways as a solution to this problem and tom you recently ran a tech pulse webinar on AML software and many are seeing this as maybe a solution to all of this some may call bureaucracy so what are some of the considerations that came up during that session I think the big thing that came out of it really I mean technology is never the silver bullet um John Toon from Beaver and Struthers friend of the show uh he talked about getting processes documented and then looking at how technology can improve things so i mean <laughs> it's a great a great quote that I've, I've i've sort of stitched into the end of articles just saying no accountant wants to do aml it's a regulatory burden we have to put up with and for us it's about minimizing its interference with the rest of our client work um yeah so it was just sort of breaking down exactly what it was what what the software does and how it can help. So obviously you've got your your onboarding, so your client due diligence process to assist with verifying clients' IDs, uh, making sure they're not subject to sanctions, etc. And that kind of is 
it's always a must-have for any accountancy firms that have more than a handful of clients, really. Um, and then you've got a second bunch um, that, that sort of cover the whole gamut of AML compliance for accounting firms. So, you know, that that is ongoing client checks as well as the onboarding stuff, risk assessment, templates, policies and procedures, automating your know your customer stuff, training, all manner of things like that. And they're obviously more comprehensive, but but, but they're more expensive. And, and often stitched into those are these suspicious activity report forms that, that, that can automate the process. Um, there's also quite a, a handy Any Answers thread via uh, the accounting web community that discussed some of the options for smaller firms. Um, a lot of them were around the onboarding tools, but uh, they also mentioned um, some of the some of the wider compliance tools as well, and their ability to integrate with your practice management software to avoid rekeying. Um, so yeah, there was there was a lot, a lot to uh, get your get your teeth into really on on the software side of things. But again, every. Uh, Friend of the show, David Winch, who we've mentioned before, um, sent me sent me a couple of his thoughts on this, and he was urged accountants not to just adopt a package and just think that that is the end of it. Just say, oh yeah, now I'm I'm done. I can just I can just change the name on the template uh, because the regulators will have seen this package before and they'll know the strengths and weaknesses. And if you if you don't uh, every accounting firm is unique, and if you don't take that uniqueness uh, into account, be it albeit your partners or your clients, then you know you're, you're you're likely to come a cropper and end up with a slap on the wrist or a big fine. So, to get a sense, any of these this tech is a silver bullet, or is will that building continue? Um, yeah, uh, as I said, it's 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 never the silver bullet, but I think there are there are definitely ways in which it can lighten the load. So it seems like to kind of put a bow on this, that it's probably there are, are options out there to kind of help you. There's options out there to kind of remove some of the burden and it's kind of be best to actually do something rather than nothing and to actually make this part of that onboarding process yeah. with clients. It's painful. It is, it is painful and it's taking you away from the core of your client work in this webinar, actually. And I think uh, I think our, our, our dear producer, Will, uh, wrote an article off the back of the webinar, actually talking about one of the options, which uh, Izzy Rosenberg, who was who was uh, who joined John Toon on the webinar, he talked about actually paying a fee for the client to uh, to come on board to sort of cover the onboarding costs, and that generated a great deal of heat on the sites. But I thought it was quite quite an interesting way to approach things because you're paying for the software, you're paying for people's time to be you know checking passports and documents and everything like this. So you know why not? Um, so yeah, there there, there 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 are lots of different um, lots of different ways to approach this. Well, while some smaller tech vendors may be making at least some hay, I guess, out of the uh, the need to comply with AML regulations. We continue to see other smaller players struggle with some other issues, what that mostly being the MTD. It's a delay, and there's no better example than this than Go Simple Tax's acquisition of Coconut. So, Tom, you had this story this week. Mm. What happened? <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> uh, bear with me. 
this is going to be like one of those history podcasts about medieval England or the, the Hundred Years' War or something where there are going to be loads of characters sort of chucked in and you've, you've got to keep up. So, yeah, pay attention. There will be a quiz at the end. Um, but last week, uh, last week I was tipped the nod that um, Gay Simple Tax were in the process of acquiring coconuts. Uh who are Go Simple Tax? I'm not sure they, they sort of come up on a lot of accountants' radars. It's it's sort of uh, you know small. It's it's a filing solution, so self assessment and VAT um, for small sole, sole traders um, individuals. Um, and it's well originally founded by uh, Celso Pinto, actually. Really? Um, yeah. So you got Mr. Mr. That. Mr. Pixie. Um, more on more on that practice management tool next week. Um, but uh, anyway, yes, back to back to go simple tax. They, they were taken over by Pennine Ventures, so the lot um, behind Key Time, who who some of some that? of our um, regular um, listeners will have will have remembered uh, back in 2015 were a, a big player in the in the practice software world, but were bought by Iris. Um, as I said, go go simple tax at the moment a dedicated filing tool. Who are coconuts? I, th- I think anyone who's attended an event at the accounting industry over the last couple of years will have come across them. Uh, originally, they were part of that cluster of bank slash accounting apps that appeared in the late 2010s, but they they pivoted to a new offering. So it was a sort of bank fee driven, automated bookkeeping. They, they they sort of build it as a sort of post cloud accounting um, app as it were and uh they 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 very much they leaned heavily on mtd itza and the sort of quarterly reporting aspect of it for sole traders landlords and small businesses so yeah that was an interesting pivot and they seem to be they seem to be going along quite well until the mtd itza um delay was announced and as i say they they had very much rolled the dice on mtd itza driving growth and um I mean, it didn't didn't quite come up snake eyes, but maybe maybe a one and a two. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so um, they have uh, essentially handed over the business. I, I think it was a sort of a one pound sale for um, Go Simple Tax. So they've acquired it as um, acquired it uh, to keep the business running rather than folding it, as as it were. I mean, there are lots. There are lots of angles. I mean, definitely, definitely, the one I'm interested in for the future is this sort of how the two products are going to stitch together. So it's a sort of end-to-end cloud player for 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 individuals, sole traders, small businesses. So essentially, bringing the data in via your bank feed, categorizing transactions, um, and and then sort of taking it right through to filing. I mean. Whether it's Go Simple Tax or the Coconut brand, I mean, they they talked about having both brands for the time being, but the history of such acquisitions shows that it, eventually they they do come together. But yeah, uh, the the MTD it's a fallout is another one you you mentioned about that. So I think Tax Sheets was one that folded almost immediately after the delay was announced but they i mean they that, that was a sort of experiment with a few clients whereas coconut had 8000 plus customers mm-hmm. I, I i believe um and and just didn't didn't have the cash to to ride out the next couple of years whereas and, and i think it's it's a shame because it was 
it was a good product. It was an innovative product. Um, you know, there were issues with it, but I, I think that uh, they were, you know, um, Sam and Adam, who, who sort of founded it, were, were sort of working through them and, and very much engaging with the accounting web community who came up with this stuff. Um, so it's it's a shame. Smaller players often drive innovation. The big guys have the cash to sort of ride out the next couple of years and they'll be okay. So it, it is a shame that, you know, HMRC's systems not being ready has, has led to this. It is a consequence which I suppose when the announcement was made, it wasn't the initial thoughts of many people that this would kind of have a knock-on effect for some of those smaller vendors. Mm. But as the, the months are going on, it just goes to show just how tough it is out there. I think, did, yeah, the uh, the gamble was that it MTD, it's, uh, the, 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 the reporting requirements of it would drive digitalization. It would get people get people off the, the the pen and paper or the spreadsheets or whatever they were using and, and onto more digital tools. But uh, without that regulatory stick hanging over them, I I think you'll you'll see a sort of regression to the mean, as it were. And and, and people are still digitizing. You know, you see it in the growth rates of the various cloud players, but it, it's just happening slightly more slowly and too slowly for the likes of tax sheets and coconut. Well, we're going to shift gears slightly now and go from the, uh, all this shakeup in the, uh, the tech vendor space to um, accountancy firms moving back towards where the profession probably first started, which was become more client centric and human. And after this short break, we will be joined by Will Finell to talk about the developments he is seeing. There is still time to enter the Accountant Excellence Awards, but the deadline for entries is fast approaching. Now in our 17th year, we are proud to provide a platform to celebrate those individuals, teams and firms that truly embody accounting excellence. Why don't you start your Accountant Excellence journey today? They are free to enter and there are 21 categories to choose from. Go on. Tell your profession why your story is a winning one. Head to accountantexcellence.co.uk to enter. Welcome back. Myself and Tom are still here, and I'm delighted to say we're now joined by accountancy firm founder, speaker, mentor, author, again, it is, of course, Will Finell. Will, it's a pleasure to welcome you onto the show. Nice to be here. Nice to see you both. So, Will, I said there, author again, because, of course, you have a brand new book out, The Human Firm. So, I guess the best place to start is, what was the motivation behind this book? Why did you want to write this particular book right now? So, I wrote the first book in 2018, The Digital Firm. And the interesting thing with, I guess, between the two books is the digital firm was really talking about what we had done. Um, this book, to a point, is what we've done, but it's, it's more about what we're striving to do as, as a firm. So we're not there yet. So that's that's the first difference, because the first book was about this is what we've done, this is how we've done it, and here's some ideas and here's some mistakes uh, if you want to try and do the same thing. 
This one, there's still some mistakes, loads of mistakes, as, you, as you'd expect. Um, but we're kind of part way on the journey. So this is more about my vision of, of where I think firms need to focus in terms of the next five years, certainly. And the start point for it really is that I think we're at a point where everyone's got access to the same technology. So for, for the best part of 15 years, our USP and our business is that we were using tech that most firms weren't. That got kind of a, a, a bit less of a USP over the last few years, but I still firmly believe that we are the minority that are doing it and the majority are still not, but the gap closed. So everyone's got access to the same technology. I've done enough speaking over the years that if people want to to look at the processes that we deploy and the way we do things in our firm, they can. So therefore, the only thing we have that differentiates what, what we do and what other leading firms have that differentiates them is people. So for the last kind of four years, certainly when I was out speaking and talking about the digital firm, I talked about evolution and the journey that we went through from being kind of online accountants to cloud accountants to the digital firm. And I kind of teased, well, what's next? And I didn't I didn't know the answer to that. I genuinely didn't know the answer to that in 2019. But over time, I started to talk about the idea of the people firm or the human firm. Um, so the idea has kind of been in my head for a few years, um, but I didn't felt I'd got enough clarity around what that might look like. And I kind of have now, and, and it's turned into a almost seven hour audio book and a, uh, uh, a 70 odd thousand word uh, uh, paperback. Um, and really excited that it's now launched and we've already kind of hit number one bestseller and all of those kind of things. So uh, clearly people are, are keen to read it, which is fantastic. Well, congratulations, Will. You did say that the audio book is uh, what was it, seven hours, so I'm not going to get you to perform it right now. But <laughs> I'm glad um, about that. If you could perhaps distill maybe within, I don't know, maybe a couple of minutes, just the... I guess some of the some of the main points that you cover in the book. What would you say kind of defines a human firm? So I think we're, as I say, it's an extension of this idea that that tech is no longer an enabler, and and where the the main thinking of it comes now is that if if we imagine our our firms as two sides to it, as there's the client side and the the employee side, and really it's about what do we need to do to to kind of satisfy the the perhaps contrasting but hopefully aligned needs of both of those two respective stakeholder groups. Um, and and where some of the, the learnings are in the book from the things that we have done, um, a big part of the book, I'm talking about power of purpose, which is, which is something that I've seen from working with other firms over the last five years. Most firms would, would call me and say, hey, we'll really need some help to, to grow my firm. I think I need to talk about technology and process. But without exception, every firm that I went into, we ended up talking about vision and values because they they didn't know what they were. They couldn't articulate what is it you're trying to do as a firm? Why do you do what you do? What do you do and how do you do it? Um, and, and that alongside the fact that I started my firm in 2007 with a very clearly defined purpose, it's only in the last couple of years that I've actually been able to almost correlate the clarity of that purpose in driving so many of the things that we did as a firm that led us to where to where we are in terms of the way we use technology and the way we price our services and so on. So, I mean, that's the thrust of it, first and foremost, is that we've, we've got to start understanding 
the purpose and being really clear on on our vision as as firm owners and most firm owners their their vision is and and their values are driven around how do we really genuinely help our clients run better businesses and have better lives and all of those those kind of really client-centric things that is why everyone goes into this this business i've never met a client that doesn't care about their clients so it's then thinking about well, how do we help you do that? So if we're clear on purpose and we focus on the clients first of all, how do we help you deliver great client insight? And and you guys will know I'm a massive advocate of regular bookkeeping, but most people are still not doing it. Most people are still using bookkeeping as a means to an end. I've got to do the bookkeeping to do the VAT return. I've got to do the bookkeeping to do management accounts rather than I've got to do the bookkeeping so the client has decent data. So how do we start to build client insights? There's a big challenge in the book in terms of do we have an obligation as accountants to help our clients understand what they need because we know better than they do what they what they need. Um, so how far does our obligation extend to help our clients know what they don't know? Um, so how much should be education in terms of helping them understand why they need daily bookkeeping and why they need management reporting and why they need to talk to us more regularly? And then thinking about client lifetime value. So stop thinking about a client as a £5,000 a year fee and think about it as a £50,000 investment in your accounting firm. How does that change the perception of the way that you you view that client relationship and the upfront investment you make? And all of that stuff is underpinned by the team, the, the people that we have in our organisation, which means if we want to do that, how do we recruit, retain, uh, empower the people that we need to deliver that? We're, we're out and out a people business and um when we look at what's going on with technology and ai and everything else and we're saying well if you want to survive we've got to focus on the human stuff so how do we make sure we've got the right people to to drive that how do we create opportunities for uh, for career progression how do we build great cultures and, and most importantly for me on that side is how do we create and articulate firm personality which i think goes beyond brands which are quite static so firms are a brand but they're pretty static how do we create a personality that everybody can buy into that we can communicate and say this is who we are as as human as human firms if we're human then then humans have personalities that's what differentiates us so how do we as an accounting firm create that unique personality that that makes us different to everybody else so in a nutshell that's what it is and it's underpinned by technology and leadership because the technology is still key. We've got to use the technology in the right places, but we've also got to have that leadership that drives those behaviours and outcomes for the for the clients and the people that we, we, we employ in our teams. What have you found as some of those challenges that prevents firms from achieving this, this goal of becoming, as you said, a human firm, a client-centric firm? What, what sort of those hurdles which kind of get in the way to stop them from focusing on their values. I, I think that the first hurdle is that they haven't achieved the digital bit yet. So so it's okay. like, it's almost... So it really is a sequel I, to the digital film so. book. I believe really. so. I, I yeah. think it's a natural evolution and, and, and being what I referred to in the first book as a digital firm is almost a prerequisite. Because if you haven't done that, but you haven't created the capacity, you haven't, you haven't done the things that I talked about in that book in terms of how are you blending people, process, and technology to deliver great client experiences? How are you creating capacity to enable you to 
to build those relationships because in essence I think the human firm is just full circle so actually we've gone back to where we were 25 30 years ago when accountants lived and died by the relationships they had with their clients and compliance kind of got in the way over the last 20 years and we've gone full circle we're back to relationships with the human firm with the added advantage of insight that we didn't have before because the only way you got the insight is if you sent somebody to their office to sit in the office for two days a month to do the management accounts or whatever we now have the tools and we can build the processes that give us the insight to have those meaningful conversations and take those relationships to a level that we've never had before in terms of the value of that relationship do you think some firms have over the way over the time kind of strayed away from that client-centric kind of belief to begin with and then they're almost returning back to where they were at the beginning if that kind of makes sense yeah I think so I mean we've, we've kind of had this drive for technology um uh and I mean there, there are firms out there that have ignored the technology and maybe still have great relationships but my my challenge is how long is that sustainable if they're not generating the efficiencies from from utilizing the technology so it's kind of why you've got to do one before the other we've, we've got to get the most out of the technology because that's what drives the efficiencies and frees us up the capacity and so on um but i think it it's it's almost again that that cycle compliance got in the way so our focus went from let's have great relationships so let's keep clients out of jail um uh because i mean you you've seen it you've reported on it in terms of rti and auto enrollment and gdpr and frs and and all all of these these acronyms that have meant that our focus is that we've got to make sure all of this compliance gets done on time to save penalties um and that's number one priority we'll think about the relationship later um so how do we kind of automate more of that mundane stuff that we have to do to enable us the time to to reinvest in those relationships tom have you got um any thoughts on this yeah i think it's a a very timely um book with the emergence of the likes of sort of open ai and uh auto gpt sort of uh bringing a lot more sort of into the profession um in terms of automation, um, I liked the idea of tech no longer being an enabler. I mean, in the first part of this podcast, we were talking about anti-money laundering software in particular to sort of meet a compliance um, obligation that seems to be growing at the moment. Um, but sort of saying you've got to work out your processes first and then find the tech that enables you. And on that on that particular point, though, Tom, with that, AML is really good because there's a, there's a whole section in the book about um, know your client, and and for me, this is a prime example of where we can do so much more. So we we as a accountants, when it comes to KYC, it's all about ticking the box. We need to tick the box, satisfy the the, the professional bodies. If we look at what IFAs and wealth managers do with KYC, what they're doing is they're using that opportunity to understand the client's objectives how much do you want when you retire when do you want to pay off your mortgage do you want to send your kids to private school this is an opportunity for us as accountants to ask those kind of questions because then we can tailor what we deliver to those clients based on the things they're trying to achieve so i think we're we this is the point we need to go beyond the focus of let's get technology to automate aml so we don't have to worry about it 
yes, let's get technology to automate AML so that we can use that time that we would have spent manually doing AML to ask clients what they what their objectives are and how we capture that. How do we how do we build that into the way that our teams engage with those clients? So when we have those increased number of touch points, which is kind of part of what I talk about in the book, we need to talk to clients more regularly. Let's make those conversations meaningful because we've asked them what they're trying to achieve. So I think I think it's it's a, that's a prime example, and and just on the on the AI stuff, there are a couple of sections in the book, only small sections, that are written by ChatGBT. So if anybody's reading the book, see if you can spot them. I hope you can because it kind of makes a point um, that it's kind of fairly formulaic and 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 everything else. But uh, um, just because as we were writing the book, like the ChatGBT thing exploded, we thought actually let's let's kind of. I get ChatGPT to write a bit, but it also changed a lot of our thinking about how we were going to present things. So we uh, we ended up doing lots of conversations. Originally, I did interviews and we were going to use those as case studies. But it was almost like, actually, you know what? We need the human conversations because this whole humanizing thing has just got even more critical seeing what's going on with ChatGPT. That was going to be my next question. That was, that's great. I mean, how much of this is out of necessity? almost i mean i don't know there's always been a fear that tech is going to automate um accounts away but the number of accountants and accounting firms seems to keep growing rather than sort of leveling i mean it seems it seems to be sort of leveling off a little bit now but i mean it it seems to me anyway that it's likely that we may get a large software player or two in the uk doing what um, Intuit's doing with like TurboTax Live or, or QuickBooks Live and things like that, sort of offering, and, and they've got the deep pockets to be able to afford all the sort of automation and, and things like that. So how, how much is it likely to come down to uh, necessity, the, the sort of humanizing of, of, of what you offer? I, I, totally. I mean, I, I, I made... I made some bold assumptions in a digital firm that clearly were not right because we still haven't, well, I say we haven't moved on, of course we've moved on in terms of adoption, but I was over ambitious in 2018 in terms of the take up. Um, so yeah, I think that this this is the whole point that, that it, it's naturally, there's good, tech is going to do more. It's like automate the mundane. So that's, that, that, that's inevitable that we're going to get, people that are going to be able to take the low value uh, automated work. We're going to be able to use RPA and AI and all these other tools to, to do that more efficiently. So if we want to remain relevant, then we've got to focus on what are the things that the tech can never do. Um, and that may mean we end up with working with a, a smaller chunk of, of uh, the, the, the market. Um, but we need to do more for that level of the market because the lower end where it's dead easy to bung your numbers in and let the RPA and, and AI do it, then we might lose that part of the market. And that means everybody's going to move up the value chain. So the smaller firms are going to say, okay, we need some bigger clients and that's going to have a knock-on effect right away through the chain. Um, so, yes, I, I think it, it, we we will get to a point where it's like we've got no choice in, in doing this stuff. And, and it's We've got an opportunity to get ahead now. Those firms that have done digital adoption and everything else, this is their opportunity to to push ahead and and almost protect their market share by by kind of getting a control of this stuff now whilst they can, while everybody else is still looking at well, how do how do we make how do we make zero and dext work? Because there are firms that are still doing that. I mean, it's astonishing the number of firms that are still doing what we were doing in two thousand and ten. 
in terms of keying data into a cloud GL. But the reason we did it is we had no choice. Um, the number of firms that are still not connecting bank feeds and, and using a pre-accounting tool is just astonishing. Uh, so, Will, you, you've kind of talked around kind of the the concept of the human firm. Is there kind of like an example of like someone out there who is kind of living and breathing this human firm? And could you talk to our listeners about maybe who that some of those people and particularly what they're doing? I mean, I, I think we we talk to a number of people. I, I, I don't think anybody's doing it all and we're certainly not. Um, but I talk to a whole bunch of different people from different size firms with different perspectives in terms of of what they're doing. And I think that's the point that everybody's set the certain examples of thing people doing things really, really well. Uh, and and this is the opportunity. This is my first attempt at saying, well, actually, I think you need to be doing all of this. Um, and and nobody's nobody's there yet. But we talk to people like Alistair Barlow about client insight for example so so alistair's kind of gets that totally um and is delivering that level of of insight that if you ask most people what's client insight they would give you a definition and alistair's would be kind of five years on from that um so that's an example there i spoke to 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 a firm that i work with karen kennedy up in in the highlands of scotland that has absolutely nailed her purpose um, and is is a, a shining example of of kind of what having clarity around purpose and why you exist uh, as a firm is a great example. So there's lots of lots of different kind of examples of that, and we've tried to kind of draw them in uh, to the book as part of conversations and and so on. So uh, uh, it, no, nobody's nailed it, but then we could say the same thing about the number of firms that have truly nailed the digital firm, um, which is still tiny. So, Will, we've had the digital firm, we've had the human firm. What do you think is the, the uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to update three or four years what's time. next? I have no idea. Um, at the point I wrote the digital firm, I had no idea what was next. I knew there was just going to be something else. Um, I mean, the, the pace of change is, is phenomenal. Um, we, we know that. And uh, um, I think uh, we've we've had conversations before where I've kind of half-heartedly said that kind of innovation has slowed in the in the tech to let the service provision catch up, and I think there's there's still an element of that. So um, uh, literally, having just finished and published the human firm, I have no idea what's next. We've still got a bat- battle in terms of delivering for us as a firm what I'm striving for in terms of of my view of what a truly human firm is. So we'll work on that and then perhaps we'll get some insights into, well, kind of what is next. Uh, well, thanks very much for telling us about the human firm, Will. If listeners want to know a little bit more about the book, where can they find information about it? Uh, so it is available on uh, Amazon, um, uh, both paperback, Kindle and uh, Audible. Um, and uh, if you take a look at sage.com forward slash the human firm, uh, there's a bunch of information there about uh, about the book and why we've written it and and so on. So uh, plenty of information there. Well, well, it's always a pleasure having a chat with you. So thanks very much for coming on the show. And also a big thank you to everyone for listening for all your news from the world of accountancy. Join us as ever on accountweb.co.uk. But until next time, bye for now.